So the rest of you can open up to Romans 14. And you'll notice um, a good number of our high school and young adults are playing hooky this morning from church. And we wholeheartedly support it. Uh, they are off to uh, City Impact, which serves in the Tenderloin District. And uh, Josh Barrow, who used to sit in these services, now uh, lives with his wife up there full time. And they'll be serving um, all day up there. So you could be in prayer for our young people. Uh, just doing some some really cool stuff up there. By the way, talk to him about it next week. Ask him how it went. Uh, some of you have gone away and uh, had some pretty intense ministry experiences and come back and you want to share, you want to talk about it. And people go, how was your trip to Haiti for six weeks? And you go, oh man, it was... And they go, good, good, good to hear it. I was praying for you. And they're off to the next thing. And you're like, yeah, I want to give you more. So just ask them about it. It would be It would be good. Uh, we just sang two songs that had to do with us bending our knee to our maker. What we get to do in here every Sunday, whether you realize it or not, is we get to practice for an event that's coming, and that is where we meet our maker. What will our response be when we meet our maker? Our passage today says that we're going to give an account for our lives. Imagine you were handed a drawer full of money, thousands and thousands of dollars, all neatly stacked and put into nice, neat rows. And you were just given that money. This happened to me every single day for years and years as a bank teller. Now, when I had that money, it was really, really crystal clear to me that I was a steward of that money. I wasn't an owner of that money, right? I knew at the end of my shift, every shift, without fail... I would give an account for the amount of money in my, in my till. Some of you have worked retail, some of you have worked in banks, you know this. How did it change my behavior and my thoughts toward that money because I knew I was a steward and because I knew there was coming in a few hours an account that I would be, I would have to give for the amount of money. Now we're told at the beginning of Romans that our bodies are a gift to us. If you believe your body is a curse, that's a lie from Satan. Your body's a gift. All of it. The quirky parts, the weird parts. We all have them. We all have things we wish weren't true of our body. It's a gift from God. We're to steward our body well. Your mind is a gift from God that you are to steward well. Think about it. Before I was handling money, I was a steward of money, knowing I would give an account for the money. This morning, I want to draw your attention to what you already know, that your body and your mind are a gift from your maker, and one day you're going to meet your maker, and you will give an account for your life, not your neighbor's life, not your kid's life, not your parent's life, not your spouse's life, for your life. You will give an account. So friends, think about it. Every Sunday, we have an opportunity to rehearse, to practice. That day will not be strange for Christians. Why? Because Christians worship. They live every day, not just Sunday, as an act of worship where we're bowing down and saying, we're, we're ready to meet our maker. So as we meet with our maker on Sunday mornings in a very formal, specific way, realize we're rehearsing for a day that's coming, and we don't know when that day is. Augustine said this. He said, in essentials... Unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Augustine summarizes the sermon well. If you don't remember anything else and you get these, these few words, you'll kind of have a good takeaway for what this morning is about. If you're a Christian, you are to be an expert at love. 
Not talking about it, but living it. I mean, we've seen it in our Lord, modeled for us. We've experienced it and experienced it, present tense, firsthand. And we're possessed by the Holy Spirit, which means we have power to live this life of love that we're called to. So let me ask this, how is the Christian church doing? Let's localize it a little bit. Christian churches are made up of individual Christians. So rather than saying, how are Christians doing? Christians in the room, I ask you, how are you doing? Am I sincere and discerning and affectionate? Am I honoring and enthusiastic and faithful? Am I generous? If you're a Christian, love isn't just your calling card, it is your hallmark. It is to be the thing that other people who are unbelievers will understand and know definitively. That's a follower of Christ. They're experts at loving because of the power of a Holy Spirit living inside of them that no one else I know is. Today's instruction is vital. It's vital for our mission and for our witness. It is vital for our health and growth as a church, as an individual local church, but also for you individually. The life of the church depends on this. The unity and peace that came at the cost of our Savior's blood is at stake with what I'm talking about today in Romans chapter 14. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Keep this in mind as we read from Romans 14. Before we get there, ever feel judged? Ever judge? Ever judge those who are judging you? You shouldn't judge me. To which I would reply, is that your final ruling? Because you're judging me for judging you. Man, judging goes on all the time. Do you know that this is a huge hang-up for why people don't come to church? This is a huge hang-up for why people stop going to church. I don't want to go to church. Why? Because I'll feel judged. I left going to church. Why did you stop going to church? Man, I felt so judged. They're so judgmental. It's kind of curious because the non-believing world judges Christians regularly to be judgmental. And here's what I want to point out. I think that sometimes it needs to be more true that Christians are judgmental because we aren't judging well as we ought to judge. Listen to Philippians 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Do you hear how the engaged brain and love are sitting side by side in Scripture? They're not mutually exclusive. The people who know the most aren't the ones who love the worst. In fact, it ought to be growing up together. Those who know the most ought to love the best and love the most. Oh, that we'd be known as a right-judging people, as evidenced by our lives and how we live and how we love Sometimes it needs to be less true because we are just like those who have not tasted the forgiveness and grace of our Savior Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, Jesus said this, Judge not that you not be judged. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone remember the context of this? I didn't either, and I'm the pastor. 
but it's an open book test all the time. So I just turned there. It's people going around and picking out specks, little splinters in other people's lives, all the while wielding a giant log in their own life. Remember that? A log in your eye, and you're trying to help other people with their tiny little splinters. So sometimes I wish it were not as true of Christians, that we weren't as judging. Oh, that we'd never judge others while turning a blind eye to our own faults. One of our young adults was uh, using, I think, a Lyft driver, maybe Uber. I don't know which one to give credit to. And she's sharing with her, with her driver a little bit, talking, talking to him. And she was commenting how she wasn't really planning on sharing, talking about spiritual matters or whatever. But she got talking about the Lord, about her church. And she said, you know, we say something at our church that's this. It's come as you are, but don't stay that way. And she goes, it's not just a little cliche. It's not just a little tagline that we throw around. We really, really live that way. And her point that she was making with her Lyft driver was this. To get cleaned up before you go to church is dumb. There's just no point to it. You can't get cleaned up. That's the whole point. That's why we're here. So if you want to join a bunch of other people who are, who are sinners saved by grace, then come to our church. But God loves you way too much to leave you in the mud, doesn't he? He doesn't leave you in the pit. He welcomes you home, prodigal. He says, get over here. Let's get you cleaned up. Let's get a robe on your, on your back. Let's get a ring on your finger. And let's have a massive barbecue with your friends. I am so glad you're part of my family. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. You know, if you're at this church, you're learning to embrace conviction. We understand that truth and light hurt temporarily. But they heal us for eternity. Right, So that's where we come to embrace the light. We embrace truth that is painful at first. Last week, Ben talked about from Romans 13 that the light is an armor. It protects us from the elements. This, this daily dressing in the light arms us to think rightly about different kinds of matters. And here's what we're going to talk about this morning. Disputable matters. We're going to think rightly about disputable matters. Now, this title this morning, some passages are so amazing, they require two titles and two sermon slides, and that's what this is. So it's sort of an overlay of two big ideas. So here's the first one, uh, is judgmental. We are to love God with all of our mind. How? By thinking rightly, to engage the mind, to make up the mind. So love the Lord your God with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself by not sharing your opinions with them, unless love dictates. That's the teaching in Romans 14. Make up your mind. Don't always share your mind. Please. Judge mentally. And then keep it to yourself unless it's going to give grace to the hearer. Unless love dictates that you wage in and share your convictions. Romans chapter 14 verses 1 to 12. Follow along with me. If you're an auditory learner and you learn better not looking at the pages, just close your eyes and listen. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So, in trying to think rightly about disputable matters, at least the following is true. One is that essentials matter. There are essentials that are worth being unified over. Remember who's writing Romans? Who is it? It's Apostle Paul. Paul is writing this. Elsewhere it's recorded many, many times and in many places that he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was shamed, he was left for dead. Why? Over ideas. He was willing to be beaten and left for dead over ideas. He knew that there were essentials worth dying for. What are those essentials? Well, I don't propose to say that our doctrinal statement is the ones that Paul fought over, but here's what I would say. We think there are some essentials that are so important that we wrote them down. They live on our website. These are the things that we say, these are the things that we say there's, it's worth fighting for unity over. We're going to have a membership class in a couple of weeks. Uh, myself and another elder will walk through these doctrinal statements. We will say these are the essentials that we've gathered around from all different walks of life. You all ha- should, should get a view from up here sometime. It's so cool to look out at this room and just go, and I know some of your stories. It's awesome that we're here in Christ. What are we doing? We're unified over some key truths, over some ideas. There are essentials that are salvation issues. There are essentials that the scripture is clear and closed-handed about. These are worth being unified over. Conversely, there are non-essentials. Non-essentials exist. And these require liberty. I bet if you were hanging with Paul, you could just sit there and instead of pointing to his tattoos and going, what does that tattoo mean? You could say, hey, that scar up your forearm, what's that one about? His bruised and scarred body told a story, didn't it? So he'd probably be able to just tell you that, uh, this is the time that I you know, stood up for the deity of Christ, that he's not just a good teacher or prophet. That's actually nonsense. He died because he claimed to be the son of God and 
I hold to that same truth, and so I got beat up for it. Feel this lump on my head. You know what this one's from? This is from the fact that there's, there's a canon of Scripture, that there are holy Scriptures that are right from the mouth of God. He also knew there were non-essentials going, whoa, 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 I get beat up for other things. This one isn't worth fighting over. This is a non-essential. Don't beat me up. I'll give. There's liberty here. I mean, Paul's writing this, and, and he could say easily, there are disputable matters that exist. They're not salvation issues. They might be spiritual issues that the Bible talks about, but it's not closed-handed on it. It's open-handed. It's really open to interpretation. Think about this. These disputable matters that cause conflict in every church family. If you ever leave our church family, you go, man, these guys, these guys bicker and fight. You go to another family down the street, guess what you're going to find eventually? They bicker and fight. If you're new here, let me tell you, welcome. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Let me tell you something early on. I'm going to let you down. As one of the pastors and shepherds, I'm going to let you down. Sooner or later, I'm going to let you down. Sooner or later, you're going to discover, man, this is a genuinely welcoming, loving church. I can attest to that. But I will tell you, at some point, you'll discover, wow, they kind of have conflict just like every other church I've been to. So there's conflict that exists, but catch this, disputable matters that cause conflict in church families have the potential of, of, of shining huge light on the grace of God. They have the potential, the same disputable matter can cause conflict and ugliness and lead to more sin, or it can actually shine the spotlight on God's forgiveness and grace as his children go, you know what, I vehemently disagree with you on this, but let's walk in, in, in liberty on this. I'm not going to hold that because I, I don't agree with you, but I can see how you could come to that conclusion. Paul gives two really specific matters of conscience that were tripping up the Roman church. They were food and holy days. Probably this was Jews who had very strict dietary laws and very strict Sabbath-keeping rules that they had had from the time they were young. This is what defined their walk with God. And all of a sudden in Christ, they see other people who are exercising the freedom they have in Christ, and they're wrestling with it. And they don't keep the dietary laws. They don't keep the Sabbath rule-keeping laws that my favorite rabbi taught when I was young. And this was part of who we were. At first, it probably seems kind of far-fetched, because in this room, we don't have a lot of people arguing over beef or vegetables. Gluten, maybe. There's some fights that could break out over gluten or not. But, but you know, generally, that's not the argument. And most people don't, you know, I don't get a lot of counseling appointments saying, Pastor, I need to, you know, I need to come by. I, I drove by on a Sunday, and, and Brother Kel was out mowing his lawn on a Sunday. And I'm, I'm really wrestling with my judgmental thoughts towards Kel, and I don't want to have those, so can we have a counseling appointment? I need to work through that. I just don't get a lot of those. But if you think about it, food and days isn't all that uh, different or foreign to us. Consuming meats or vegetables isn't a religious thing, but how about alcohol? How about assorted plants that are lit on fire for entertainment purposes? Right? I mean, those are things that are consumed and, um, and Christians like to fight over. How about days of the week? We may not fight on, on, uh, you know, in the same way as the Roman church, but think about this. How do we celebrate Christmas? Christmas tree or no Christmas tree? Don't even let me mention Halloween. Ooh, that could stir some fights up. And then how about this? Once we do meet on a Sunday morning, what should we do? 
How deep should we go theologically? How shallow should we go? How welcoming should we be? Right? How, what's the temperature? I mean, we fight about a lot of stuff as Christians. Some of it's really, really nonsense. What should we do on Friday nights? What's allowed? What does our Christian liberty allow? So there's all kinds of things about days of the week and intake, what comes into our body, that we still fight over. It's different than the Romans, but it's still there. So what's the instruction? Quite simply, if you're taking notes, write this down. He gives two don'ts. Don't welcome only to argue. Don't be welcoming church only so you can argue with your opinions. Secondly, don't pass judgment on fellow believers. You ever seen a sheep wearing one of those, you know, British wigs that the judges wear? It's not a good look. Sheep shouldn't be wearing judge wigs. It's not, it's not for them. It's not even their job. What should we do? We should form convictions. We should live out those convictions in honor of the Lord. Judge mentally. Verse 5 says really clearly, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The transforming of the mind that's going on in Romans 12.1 will begin to form convictions that you are to live out. And unless love dictates, keep those to yourself. Don't be an opinion vending machine. Before we look at the strong and the weak that he kind of gets into, I want to I want to expose kind of two extreme camps to avoid when it comes to disputable matters. It's the fire extinguishers and the pyros. Here's the fire extinguishers. Fire extinguishers avoid conflict like the plague, and they will never discuss disputable matters. The moment there's the slightest sign of conflict, don't judge each other. We're to love each other. Stop it. These are people that live in the shallows, And they don't wrestle with nuance. They don't wrestle with the complexity. You know what else? Let me say something um, without judging you. Let me just throw this out. You see if it sticks. I think people that don't ever want to talk about this may not seriously read the Bible or read the Bible to live the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, guess what? You get opposing ideas. My devotions, my quiet times aren't so quiet all the time. Why? Because I'm wrestling with it. I'm like, wait a minute. I've read something opposite of that in a different part of scripture. How can that jive? Or I was always taught growing up that that's flat out wrong. And this seems to not have any issue with it. Is this prescriptive or is this just descriptive? There's a lot of things in the Bible you shouldn't go do. Why? It's descriptive. It's telling what actually happened. It's not prescribing. It's not saying go and do these same things. So doesn't it stand to reason that if you read your Bible and you read your Bible seriously enough to want to live it and follow it, you're going to come up with disputable matters just within your own self? Those are the fire extinguishers. They have a theme song. It's called Everything is Awesome. Here's the pyros. The pyros love conflict. And they make every matter into a life or death situation. Liberty and charity aren't in their vocabulary. They have convictions and they have ideas. And they love to grill other people with where they stand so that they can spar with them. Their two favorite colors are black and white. 
Let me tell you, if you're a pyro or you're a fire extinguisher, let me say this. The path of love doesn't walk on either one of those paths. Christian, you're to be an expert at loving. An expert. Growing toward there. Have any of us arrived? Of course not. But we're to be experts at loving. If you're either one of these two camps, you are not walking the way of love. Look carefully at the transition that Paul is talking about. Paul is introducing a really key idea that he's going to camp out on for a couple of chapters here in Romans. And that's the idea of acceptance. We miss the opportunity to become experts in love when we bypass the key word that will show up five times in these next few chapters. Look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Down at verse 3, don't despise and judge your fellow Christians, for God has welcomed him. You know what's curious? As I studied for this passage this week, I thought about this. I went to Bible college. I went to a Bible college that didn't have a singular um, denomination attached to it. In fact, we had people from many, many different countries that came from around the world. The bigger part of my education wasn't in the classroom. It was at the dorm devotions when I had Africans and several different Asian countries and people from Oregon all in one room, and it was a strange and wild land. I lived with a guy from South Korea. My other roommate was a guy from India. You think Bible college students don't love to get in and discuss disputable matters with one another? My goodness, we knew way too much. And then we discovered we didn't know diddly squat. So my college experience, we had a lot of discussion around this. Every time I've heard someone talk about disputable matters, you know what they want to jump right to? Disputable matters. And whether they're the weak or the strong ones in the faith. You know what I never ever hear people talk about? The main idea of the passage. Welcome the weaker brother. Come as you are. Don't welcome him in only to go, where do you stand on end times? How do you, which translation of the Bible do you use? How come you're dressing that way? Don't welcome someone only to argue opinions over them. So every time I hear Romans 14 mentioned, it's from two people arguing, wanting to, I think, say that they're the strong in the faith and they want to argue about it and they want to see how we should handle disputable matters. Which is curious because they argue about how we should handle disputable matters. I've never heard someone say, man, I just want to make sure I'm an expert at loving. I want to welcome them because God welcomed them. Far be it for me to ever have a kind of welcome that wouldn't match the level of liberty that God welcomes prodigals home. Dave, can you make sure I understand this path? Never had it before. I've never seen it before. You've heard this Greek term years ago, and it's this word proslambano. That's what the word translated welcome is, and it's far more than a simple Greeting. It means to receive, to take hold of, to bring along, to lead alongside, to gather together. Catch this. To grant someone access to your heart. That's the kind of welcome. And when I, when I heard this word and preached on it years ago, it's the idea of some of you who have older kids and you have a brand newborn or you've adopted or you fostered and the moment they come in and they're, they're now welcomed into the family. 
That's the picture of proslambano. That's the picture of welcome. It's not, hi, my name is Dave. Welcome. Now I'm done. That's the level that we're talking about. And he's going to use the same exact verb in some different ways. We'll look at other shades of it as we move along. But for this morning, it's just saying, we're to welcome the weak in the faith who are not free in Christ. Part two of this message is to scrutinize your scruples. Now, I'll be honest. Here's a little bit of just letting you in my head. I wanted to use scruples in the, in the title. That's just a cool word. I had to go look it up. I thought it was a board game. Isn't it a board game or something like that? I think, yeah, I think it is. But several commentaries use the word scruples. I'm like, that's just, that's fun to say in my mind. It's even, it dances even more on my tongue. And so I wanted to get it. I went and read it. I thought, wow, this is exactly what this passage is talking about. So what does scruples mean? It's a doubt or hesitation as to what is morally right in a certain situation. So you're faced with a situation and it gives you pause. Why? Scrutinize is to examine in detail or with careful attention. So here's the point. When you hesitate and you think in your mind, is this right or wrong? Should I do this or shouldn't I? You ought to evaluate where is that coming from? What, what's my hesitation? And then that will help you along. Let me have you look at the picture for just a second. This picture seems to depict prayer and Bible reading. Let me say really clearly, these are good things. These are essentials. The Bible couldn't be more clear that prayer and Bible reading are vital to the Christian. It's air and, and, and food to you. That's what that is. Those are essentials. There are essentials that exist. Can you see the non-essentials in the picture, though? There are several non-essentials that exist in the picture that we do, and maybe we do without thinking. So here are at least a couple of non-essentials. Folded hands for prayer. That's a non-essential. Next time you fold your hands, ask yourself, here's scrutinizing your scruples. Why am I doing that? Why am I folding my hands right now? Go to pray. Why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? Or why am I doing that and never doing that? Right? It's thinking about our body. Why are we doing these things? How about the Bible in ink and paper version? Non-essential, right? Bible's essential. The format of it, not essential. If you're of a different generation and you see kids playing on their phone in church, don't be quick to judge. Don't be quick to judge. Man, they might have a couple of translations open and checking out my pro-slombano comment and going, I wonder if that's really the word or not. It's not essential that it's in paperback form or especially an old, dusty, well-worn looking Bible. Number three, being near old looking wood to be more spiritual, right? So it gets a little silly here, but uh, you know, uh, some are like, man, I can't believe we're sitting on chairs. It's supposed to be wooden pews. I'm supposed to get splinters when I leave church. I mean, this is, this is supposed to cost me something being in church, right? I'm, I'm telling you, people fight over weird stuff. They do. Pastor, before I come, or, or you know, if I'm going to start getting plugged in, do you guys do this or this? Do you guys not do this or this? Do you guys use this or this translation? Do you guys have TV in church? I mean, it's all kinds of stuff. And 99 times out of 100, I feel like it's non-essentials. It's not fighting over the essentials. So, does that mean I shouldn't fold my hands or read from a paper and ink Bible or be near old wood in church? Not necessarily. 
Here's what I'd say to you. Here's my challenge to you. Make up your mind. Examine why you do it. This doesn't need to be a big, drawn-out Greek study. You might just go, like my wife, I just like holding a book more than doing this on an iPad. Great! Do it. So just make up your mind, but then keep it to yourself. You don't need to share that with every person. The subtitle of part two of the less of the title is the word or whim test. Here's what that means. Are your convictions based on your study of the word of God or do they come from, are they borrowed from what is comfortable, from what's familiar, what you grew up with, with what's easy or with what some popular blogger that you like, it's their conviction, and you're like, ooh, that's good, I'm taking that one for myself. Make up your own mind, and then simply live out your convictions, and let other people live out their convictions. Let's talk about the weak and the strong just for a second. Paul identifies with the strong, by the way. Next week we'll look at this in in verse 14 of this chapter. He's clearly in the side of the strong camp. He thinks he's one of the strong. Here's what he's saying in essence is this. Paul knows that their position on meat and holy days is right. He also knows that how they're expressing that position is wrong. Do you see that? You have the right knowledge. You actually are right in this. But the way that you're walking is not the path of love. Remember, the same guy wrote this. If I possess all knowledge, but I don't have love, what am I? I'm a loud, clanging gong or a cymbal. I'm not singing the sweet note of grace. I'm annoying you. You're avoiding me who has a ton of knowledge. Why? Not because I couldn't help you maybe a little bit, but because of the way that I hold that knowledge. It's so obnoxious. Paul says, stop it. The strong here are those who understand the gospel and the freedom that they have in the gospel. They are unconstrained by religious rules. Sometimes people who get saved out of a non-Christian, non-religious, non-churchy background are are the greatest ones to listen to when I say, hey, we're trying to reach out to people at Easter to let them know, hey, this isn't a private club, this is for you, what should we do? And they come up with all sorts of crazy ideas. And I'm like, this person did not grow up in church. We should do a nightclub, right? I mean, people love to drink. They love disco balls. They love loud pumping music. I'm like, okay, work with me. Like, how do we transition that to like something more meaningful? I don't know. I just thought, I just kind of wanted to drink right now. You know, they just have these different ideas. And then, and then those, uh, those who did grow up with, with, uh, um, a Christian or spiritual or religious background, uh, they can trounce all over people who, when they hear the first beat of an EDM type sounding song, they just wrestle with the flesh. They wrestle with their past. They go, man, please don't even mention, uh, alcohol at all. Cause that's like, I'm one sip away from a really bad place again. And a lot of times people who grew up in church, they don't get it. They just don't. So do you see the conflict? Easy to have conflict over this. So the strong are those who have uh, their, their gospel freedom. The weak are those who lose sight of the gospel and they're bound to past regulations or perceptions that still cling to them. 
The strong were welcoming and accepting only as far as they could give opinions. The weak were disciplined and precise, but also in bondage. Both were failing to love well. That's what Paul's getting after here. Be an expert at loving. We just laid out in Romans 12, 9 and following, let your love be genuine. What does genuine love look like? Here it is. Inside the church, this is it right here. Disdainful contempt or frowns of judgment. Man, this is withholding the acceptance that, that God so freely gives. Let me give you a quick case study in the person of Peter. Peter moved from being weak in the faith to strong in the faith in disputable matters. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 10. I don't think I wrote that down in your notes, but go read Acts chapter 10. It's the time he's having a vision, right? And in the vision, all these unclean animals are being put before him. And a voice says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. What's Peter's response? Never. Man, I've got a 100% track record on this. Not on your life. Why does that happen three times? Because we need to hear it over and over again. If I ever sound repetitive, it's because I'm being biblical. Here's what's powerful. Peter's faith eventually allows him the freedom not only to eat that which he previously thought was unclean, but watch this, to dine with people he used to think was unclean. You see what God did? It's so powerful. Hey, you better have freedom in the food area because I'm, I'm moving you on to way, way bigger things. You think this is stretching your, your, your faith right here? Man, we're, we're going into you know, experts only soon. And Peter did it. He went from being weak in the faith, constrained with his past regulations, into being totally free. But then he had a relapse. If any of you in this room think I'm one of the strong in the faith or I'm one of the weak of the faith, you're wrong. You're both. We're multifaceted. We're complex people. Peter has a relapse in Galatians 2. In Galatians 2, he knew he had freedom to dine with Gentiles. Why? Because he had this crazy dream. And at the third time of the dream, he hears a knock at the door where a guy is saying, hey, come dine with us. We're Gentiles. And he's like, whoa, I won't forget this the rest of my life. He knew he had freedom. These weren't unclean Gentiles. These were brothers and sisters in Christ. What did he do when his Jewish fellow countrymen came up who were bound by their strict rules of Old Testament law? You know what he did? He pulled back from the Gentiles. He wouldn't eat with them. He kind of pulled back into his old ways. Paul gets really aggressive and in his face, and here's why. Other people were following his lead. Anytime a leader does something that's visible, other people start to follow that person's lead. You know what Paul's fighting for, friends? He's fighting for prosombano. There's a parent who's welcomed in a new baby. You know what happened when we first brought Ethan home? We put him on the couch next to Curran, who's about two years older than him, and we had this cute picture for five, like five seconds, and then Curran goes, Poosh! and he like kicks him, off, you know, not quite off the couch, but we're like, oh, it's so it begins, like sibling rivalry, you know? Um, we didn't just go, oh, isn't that cute, or that's a non-essential, we won't really deal with that. We dealt with that. We dealt with that because we're going to fight for unity in our family. So Paul confronts Peter to his face on this. Had nothing to do with dietary laws or Sabbath. It wasn't about that. This was about the, the value of acceptance. 
As you scrutinize your scruples, let it drive you to the word in prayer. Let it drive you to the word personally so you can go form your convictions. Let me put this up for a minute. Here's just a couple. Does your faith allow? Does your faith allow baking a cake for a homosexual couple? Does it allow you to eat cake at a gay wedding? Are you allowed to attend a gay wedding? How about a tattoo? How about drinking alcohol or eating gluten? How about voting? How about watching movies? If so, what rating? If not movies, what do you watch on other screens? How about reading? Are you allowed to read all authors or just some? These are freedom, bondage, open-handed, but there's interpretation there. There's biblical truth in there. These are some, some issues that confront us. Look at Galatians 5. It says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If you are constantly touting your freedom, it is like, it is like a husband touting the fact that he has authority over his wife. By the time you have to say it, you have not been serving in love probably. Use your freedom to serve others. 1 Peter 2.16 says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Here again, freedom and love live side by side in the scripture. It's not free to be right and point out everyone else's wrong. It's not free to have your convictions about what's right and to pass judgment on those who don't hold your same spiritual disciplines. Can I just tell you, church, I would have preached this passage even if there were. But right now, there's no elephant in in this room. In the life of our church right now, there is not one singular, uh, you know, event or topic or item that's that's hot for debate that if i were to throw it out you know you would all immediately divide into two camps this is a fun time to preach this sermon it's a little bit harder and stickier when i say one thing and it's like wow we're wading through this we're about ready to rip apart as a family over this but let me say this the bible instructs over and over to maintain unity we say it this way in our home all the time do the hard work of getting along You know why people aren't experts in loving? Because it's hard. You know why else? It doesn't come from the flesh. You've got to be born again and walking in the Spirit and laying down rights. All right, if you're taking notes, jot these down. What does God do? What do we do? What God does is He purchases and ensures our ongoing freedom. Friends, this is good news. This is what we're about to remember around the Lord's table in just a moment. That Jesus once for all secured our freedom. We're the slave of Jesus. We're not the slave of anyone else. No one else has the right to make judgment on us. And we don't have the right to pass judgment on them. We're the slave of Christ. He's the one that purchased and ensures our ongoing freedom. He welcomes us and accepts us through his blood. Number two is that he put us in a family. 
He doesn't save you and then leave you alone. He saves you and puts you in a family. Most days you're thrilled about that. Some days you're not. You know why? You have spiritual siblings that get on your nerves. Welcome to family life. Amen? There's not a family on this planet that doesn't live like that. If you don't, if you just, if you don't know that, take a road trip. Drive across the country in your little sedan with your family. And you won't get to Sacramento before you'll have you know, all kinds of, I get it! I repent. God puts you in a family. You know what this does? This sharpens and hones us, friends. If we can't love well in here, how are we going to do against those who are, who are opposing us? And we're called to love even our enemy the way Jesus did, right? You know what I love about this passage? Do you see that love believes all things kind of pops up in this passage? You know what Paul says? He says, look, a person who's eating meat or abstaining meat, they're doing so is under the Lord. They gave thanks to God for that meat. They're doing that in honor of him. The one who observes one day and the one who thinks that all days are worth observing as holy, they're doing it as unto the Lord. Do you hear the benefit of the doubt here? Love believes all things. Just let the other person, if they, don't, if they abstain from gluten, let them abstain to gluten for the glory of God. Believe the best about your sister. You worry about yourself. You form your own convictions. Number three, he judges us. You think the church is judgmental? It may not be nearly as judgmental as you think it is. There's coming a judgment day. We don't hide from that or shirk that. We welcome that. We will all give an account, not for our neighbors, but we will give an account for how we love those neighbors. Do you catch the difference? So let's get after it and love our neighbors well. What do we do? We reason and we refrain. What do I mean by that? We reason. We make up our mind through diligent study and prayer reason and then you know what you do you bring those and this is where community groups great because you can sharpen and hone and say hey guys i've landed on this position can you help me test it out with a few trusted friends am i off base here can we all get our bibles out and just kind of discuss this i need help so you reason and secondly you refrain what do you refrain from you refrain from passing judgment on others you refrain from spiritual superiority to others Oh, you poor thing. You're still bound to religious rules. One day you'll be awesome like me. That, that is, that, you know what? That makes me want to run from church. That is heartbreaking. Because people won't come drink the living water if that's the attitude and the, the air that, that comes off. I'm sure this was reminded to our students, but anytime Christians go and serve... I've heard from multiple sources. I just read in a book the other day of a, of a person, social worker in, in uh, Chicago. And this sentiment carries through. They said, you know, Christians are the best help. They'll do whatever I tell them to do. They'll stay long. They show up year after year after year. The one thing I have to do with them is make sure they don't come off as prideful and condescending in their service. This passage is talking about that, friends. That we don't go from a position of strength and let me help the poor people, but we recognize our own poverty and we point to a generous God and we're generous with every possible thing we can be generous with. All right, what do we do? I already told you. Think about this. What if we just as a church said we are committed to walk arm in arm 
without seeing eye to eye. We're committed to walk arm in arm without seeing eye to eye. I'm not talking about essentials. We have a doctrinal statement. I'm talking about the myriads of other things that we sinfully argue over and hold grudges over. We're going to move into a time of communion shortly. But as we do, I want you to listen to this song that just highlights this unity that we have as the family of Christ uh, in this song that we sing.